Our scripture reading this afternoon is from 1 Peter 1. Passages can be found on page 10 of the bulletin and projected above. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary. Okay, kids, you can grab your uh, Trinity Kids Bulletin, and uh, you can jot these three things down to listen for. One is the frozen food section. Secondly, uh, a play actor. And then thirdly, a baby crying. Uh, frozen food section, play actor, and baby crying. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us now. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleased tonight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, we thank you that it is absolutely true. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us because you love us. And so we pray that you would attend to us, your people, as we attend to your word now, and that your spirit would be at work. And we pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. When I was uh, 15 years old, I got my, uh, my first job that wasn't lawn mowing or snow shoveling. And uh, I was what was called a courtesy clerk at Hy-Vee Grocery Store in Kansas City, Missouri, which really meant I bagged groceries. Um, and then I would help customers out. Uh, after a few months, though, I got promoted to the frozen food section. And uh, what I did there was a lot of uh, stocking shelves and making sure my boss knew when something needed to be reordered, pretty much. But there was another huge part of my job, and that was something called facing. And uh, I don't, th this was probably done in other retail, uh, but I had never heard of it before, and I've never heard anybody else talk about it either. But uh, what, what facing was is you would go and you'd pull two or three of the products in a particular row all the way to the front. And so part of my job was to do that uh, for the entire frozen food section. So you'd go through and, and you'd pull them all to the front for every row, every product in the whole section. And so this is how literally every one of my shifts ended. Like I would do it until it was time for me to go home. But what happened is that at the end, you could walk through the entire frozen food section and it looked great. Like it looked totally neat, it looked put together, and it looked completely full, like these shelves were totally stocked. Uh, the, the reality, though, was, was that there were actually only like two Hungry Man pot pies there that, that you could see. And behind it, it was empty, disorganized, kind of scattered. It didn't look very good at all. So uh, here's why I mentioned that. I realized this a few years later. That's actually a pretty great picture of what we do with our own lives. We do a great job of facing, of, of putting on a, a, an image uh, of being great being neat, being put together in some way, being organized and being full and, and looking really nice from the outside. 
But it's all just a face. Because behind that face are are things we'd rather not let anybody see. And and of course, that that kind of dynamic of of, of putting on some sort of image is, is not anything new. It goes all the way back to the garden. All the way back to Adam and Eve when sin entered into the world, where, where there was this temptation to hide that arose immediately after they sinned against God. And so what's happened since then is that we've become experts in hiding. We're, we're great at putting forward some sort of image. And, and that takes all kinds of different forms. We, we can talk some about that in a bit. What I want us to notice though right now is that that kind of hiding actually makes real relationships with other people impossible. Why? Well, because as long as I continue to put this face up, you never really know me. And as long as you continue to put that face up, I will never really know you. And, and, and so, so what happens is that we get stuck in this place of having this, this deep desire within us for real relationships, uh, of knowing somebody else and being known by somebody else. And at the very same time, feeling this, this almost paralyzing fear that like, I, I don't want you to really see me. I don't want you to really see what's going on inside of me. And so what Peter does in this passage is he calls us to a kind of love. And the kind of love that he calls us to is what he says is a sincere brotherly love. It's a, 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 he calls us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And what he says is that that should actually be the hallmark of our life together. And here's the thing about that. When that happens, it is beautiful. And if you've ever had a taste of being in a community of Christians and experiencing that kind of real love, it is beautiful. And it's beautiful to our neighbors as well. It's, it's real. But the other thing about this, though, is that Peter's realistic about how hard that kind of love really is. And so he, he doesn't just tell us to do that, he actually also tells us how it's possible. So here's what I want us to see uh, in our third week here in our series in 1 Peter. I want us to see this. We love one another in the church by embracing and embodying the love of God revealed to us in the gospel. It's only as we embrace that love that's revealed in the gospel that we'll actually be able to embody that love that Peter's talking about. So that's what we're going to see this afternoon. Uh, We're going to look at this under three points. Here's the first, why we need to love one another in the church. Secondly, why we fail to love one another in the church. And then thirdly, how we grow to love one another in the church. So first, why we need uh, to love one another. So uh, this is the part of Peter's letter where he makes a little bit of a transition because he starts talking here about our life as a people of God. And so that's going to be the theme that continues uh, for the next uh, few weeks. And and this specific passage comes right on the heels of his call for us to be holy. He's called us to to, to be set apart as the people of God and to take on God's likeness. He says, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. So we're we're to become like him. And in this section, he tells us what that means for our life together, for our relationships Here's what he says, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So super easy to say, incredibly incredibly difficult to do. Here's the question I wanna start with though. Why this command? 
Like, why does Peter call to love here? There, there, there are a lot of things that he could have said about our relationships, things that, that should characterize the church. He chooses love. Why? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is this. Love is the hallmark of being a Christian. And so if you look back at, at verses 22 and 23, Peter says that this call to love flows out of having been born again to this living hope in Jesus. In other words, uh, most of these phrases that are surrounding this command are actually uh, references to the gospel itself. It's what happens when a person believes the gospel. So verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Let me press pause right there. This is a, a verse that's easy to misunderstand. So you might ask this question. Is Peter saying that you have purified your own souls by your obedience to God's command, just in a bare way? It sounds kind of like that. That's not what he's saying here. And it, it has everything to do with what he means by the truth. The truth that Peter's talking about is the truth of the gospel message. It's the gospel that he's been talking about for the whole letter thus far. And so he's saying that, that, that it's an obedience of faith. He's saying you've submitted yourself to the call of the gospel by putting your faith in Jesus. And because you've done that, there's now this sincere brotherly love that's gonna flow out of you as one united to Jesus. And he says this even more clearly in verse 23. He says, since you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God, since you have believed the gospel. So here's the point. If you belong to Jesus, if you have been born again into this living hope through, the resurrection, uh, through his resurrection, then you will become a person of love. The, 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 these two things are connected. Having experienced the love of God for you in Christ, you will become a person who loves other people. And that's not unique to Peter in the New Testament. It's all over the Bible. So Jesus says that it's gonna be by your love for one another that other people will know that you're my disciples. Paul says in Galatians 5 that the, the part of the fruit of the Spirit is love and that faith expresses itself through love. John says in, in 1 John 4 that, that we love because he first loved us. And, and of course, the, what's so important here is getting that order right. It's once you have been loved by God the Father, you will actually start to look like him and love in a way similarly to him. You're gonna take on the family likeness in that way. So um, right now, my absolute favorite commercials on TV are the progressive insurance commercials about helping young homeowners not become like their parents, right? And uh, the reason that those are so funny is because they're so painfully true in a lot of ways. And uh, so part of what Peter's saying here is that you have been born into the family of God. You have been born into this family characterized by love, and you are going to take on your family like this. You're gonna become like your father. And that's a really, really good thing. And so, so Peter calls them to, to this kind of love because it's the way of being part of God's family. It's gonna show itself in that way. Here's the second reason, though, he calls them to this. It's because they're in exile, and not only are they in exile, they're suffering deeply. And so remember Peter's audience here. They were probably converted in Rome, and then they were scattered all over the Roman Empire. And so, so they're in this new place, and they're among all these people that don't share their faith in Jesus. And, and so the temptation that they're feeling in that place is to be incredibly isolated and alone. 
They need to be with other Christians. And on top of that, they're suffering deeply because of their faith. And, and, and you know this from experience, that, that one of the worst things about real suffering is how isolating you feel in the midst of it. It can make you feel like you are utterly alone. And so uh, many of you know, uh, Robert and Christina Ryan's baby, uh, their baby daughter Dottie was back in the hospital last weekend, is actually still in the hospital now. Uh, she was having all kinds of trouble breathing. And so they, they had to take her back into the, the NICU. They had to intubate her and put her on an, a ventilator. And it was incredibly scary for, for a lot of that time Friday night. And, and, uh, and so part of what Robert had mentioned when we were texting that night is how alone and helpless he felt. Here's the thing, though, that he said made all the difference to him in that moment in the midst of that scary place. He said they were surrounded by all of these people who loved them who cared for them, who were praying for them, who were sitting there with them in the waiting room. And so he, he ended up texting me this. He said, it's been a resounding chorus of support reminding us that we are far from alone. That's one of the main ways that God communicates his love to his people. It is through one another. It's the way that he will remind you in the midst of circumstances where you are really finding it hard to believe that he really is good, that you're not alone, that he hasn't forgotten you, that he really does love you. That's what Peter's audience needed to hear. And so th this is part of why he's calling them to love. And by the way, this is part of why it is so crucial to be connected in a really vital, substantial way to the church. Because you need brothers and sisters who are gonna continue to point you to Jesus who are gonna to continue to remind you that God is with you, that he loves you, that he hasn't forgotten you, that there is real hope for you in Christ. And so Peter says, love one another. Pour yourself out for one another. Show up for one another. S serve one another. Sacrifice for one another. So that's why Peter calls us to love. Here's the thing though, he knows how incredibly difficult that is. He knows it's not easy and, and, and so he actually talks about why that is. So secondly, why we fail to love one another in the church. And so what he does is he gives this list of things that will destroy relationships within the church. These things are the opposite of a sincere and brotherly love. So look back uh, at verse one of chapter two. First, malice. What's malice? Malice is um, it, it's this twisted longing that we can have to see something bad happen to another person. And so one, one pastor puts it this way. He says, malice is that sick feeling of joy that you get when someone you hate fails. And that might sound really, sound really harsh, and, and it may not start that way. Here's the way it could start though. It may start just as some small resentment that you have for somebody. But what happens then is that it festers and it grows and it gets to a point where there's a part within you that secretly celebrates when bad things happen to that person. That's malice. What about deceit? Well, deceit, when you hear deceit, you think about lying and it certainly includes that. It's way more than lying. It's something I think most of the time that comes in much more subtle ways. It, it, it's the subtle ways of bending the truth to make yourself sound really great. Or telling a story that, that will paint you in, in the best of light. 
and paint others in a negative light. It's, it's saying things to, to manipulate people to get what you want. It's doing those things that, that, that's gonna make yourself look good. It's deceitful. How about hypocrisy? This is actually the word that, uh, that's used uh, of Greek play actors. And so there's this sort of image here of mask wearing. You say one thing and you do another. You're a disingenuous person where maybe you tell people what they want to hear, whether it's true or not, because it's going to go well for you as you flatter them. How about envy? Envy is when something good happens in the life of somebody else and you can't stand it. It eats you up. You think, that person has it so easy. They already have it so, so good. They have all these friends. They have this great job. Their kids are so well-behaved and so successful. And it's not just that you want that for yourself. It's that you don't want that other person to have it either. That's envy. And then finally, slander. If I'm all about making myself look good, then it follows that I'm gonna to try to tear you down to make myself look better. And so what I'm gonna start doing is maybe just selectively sharing some stuff about you just behind your back. And the thing is, is that I'm gonna dress it up under the guise of concern for you. But all the while, I'm gonna relish getting to say bad things about you. What Peter is saying is that these are the things that will absolutely tear a church apart. And so he says, put all of that away. Get rid of every bit of it. Here's the question, though, that I think is worth asking if we're going to get serious about putting this away. Why are these things so tempting? Why is it that, 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 that Peter mentions these things on this list here? And I, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is a, a general reason, and it gets back to some of what he said previously, and it's that we regularly face them tempt, this temptation to live as who we were rather than as who we are now in Jesus. And so in the words uh, of chapter 1, verse 14, it's to live in accord with our former ignorance, or in the, verse, in the words of verse 18, it's to live in accord with these empty ways of life, to return to those old ways of life, just because it's familiar. That's one general reason, but I think a more specific reason is this. I think these things are tempting because all of these are, are ways or attempts at self-protection. And that's part of the reason that love is so difficult because if you're actually gonna enter into a relationship with somebody and love somebody well, then that means opening yourself up to being hurt. You're making yourself vulnerable in that moment and you're enabling a person to potentially see some of the things that you don't want them to see about you. And so going back through this list, well, we'll run it this way. Why would I have malice towards a person? Well, probably because I, I, I'm threatened by them in some way. So why fall into deceit or hypocrisy? Well, it's gonna make myself look better. I envy that other person because I'm not okay. I'm not content with how God has made me or what he's given to me. And so I slander in order to make you look bad in the hopes that it's gonna make me look better. Do you see how that works? And of course, because I'm trying to protect myself and keep you at arm's length, I don't really care about you. I care about me. This is what sin looks like in all of our relationships where we're afraid to love. 
And you see how it, it makes real loving relationships impossible because I'm protecting myself and I'm keeping you at arm's length so that you can't see my weakness, so that you can't see my failure, so that you can't see my sin. And, and there's another word for that sort of self-protection and it's shame. You know that something wrong, that, that there's something wrong with you. And so these are the, the attempts to hide it. And so I'm gonna constantly compete with people. I'll blame other people. I'll want other people to look bad just because I'm so ashamed of, of all the things that are wrong with me. And it goes without saying, this is toxic to a church. And that's why Peter says, don't do it. Put all of these things away. Literally, what he, the, the word here that he's using is to say, put off that old garment, that way of life that belonged to who you were before, because that's not who you are now. So if these are the ways we fail to love one another in the church, what's the solution? Well, here, thirdly and finally, how we grow to love one another in the church, how we grow to love one another in the church. I want to suggest um, three ways here. And the first is this. We grow in our love for one another in the church by first reframing our expectations for the church. By reframing our, reframing our expectations for the church. And I, part of the reason that a lot of us struggle with the church and with relationships within the church is because on some subconscious level, we've got some real idealistic or at least unrealistic uh, expectations as to what relationships in the church should be. And part of what that looks like a lot of times is that we, we think that verse one of chapter two should be completely absent from the church and is never present at all. And so we, 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 can ha we have this sense of, uh, of thinking that that sort of hardship and difficulty and messiness won't be there. The reality, of course, is that the church is made up of broken, sinful people who have come to know Jesus. So, is he at work changing us? Absolutely, and he's doing great work in us. Does that mean that we're no longer gonna sin against each other and hurt each other? Absolutely not. There's a reason that Peter has to mention the things that he does in verse one. Here's the thing about that. When we bring those sort of unrealistic or idealistic expectations to relationships in the church, we actually are in danger of, of doing real harm to the church. So I wanna, uh, want you to flip to the front of your bulletin. There's a uh, quote there from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The way that he, the, the term he uses to describe these kind of, uh, these uh, expectations that we could bring to the church is a wish dream. So here's what he says. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And so here's part of what we need to realize. Until Jesus returns, there is no perfect church. There is no perfect community group. There is no perfect friendship or relationship in the church. And expecting that kind of perfection at a subconscious level is actually gonna uh, hinder us from pursuing real relationships that God has actually given to you, even within this room right now. So that's the first thing we need to do is reframe our expectations. Here's the second. We, we grow in our love for one another by remembering who we are in Christ. By remembering who we are in Christ. The, the only way that we can actually embody this love 
is by realizing that you have already been embraced by this love. It is only when you experience the, the, the unsurpassed love of God for you in Christ that you could ever then begin to love other people. So how does this work? Well, here's the way that Peter describes this. He describes it in terms of a new birth in verse 23. So he says, you've been born again. And that the, the seed, this imperishable seed that is now at work in you is a seed that's gonna grow. And the ways that he's using that term there is to refer to the gospel itself. So he's made you his own, he says, through the living and abiding word of God. And that seed that is at work in you now is going to grow and bear fruit in your life. And he goes on to say that that word, the growth of that seed is certain. The word of the gospel is certain. And that's his point in verses 24 and 25. So he quotes Isaiah 40, which was written to Israel when they were in exile. And so they're asking these questions like, can we really trust God's word? Can we trust his promise to us in the midst of our exile? And so Peter says, yes, you can. The word of the gospel that's been preached to you is certain. It's imperishable. It's, it's never going to fade. It's never going to fall. And so here's what that means for you. It means that if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you are already in him perfectly and completely loved. And that is never, ever going to change. You are perfectly and eternally secure in him. Your status as the beloved of God will never ever change. And so part of what that does is that as that truth begins to sink down within us, as that becomes a part of your heart and sinks down within to your bones, then you'll actually start to find yourself opening up to freely love other people in ways that you thought would be impossible. And it's because you no longer need these other things from these people because you're receiving the love that you really need from God so that you can actively then love other people. So we gotta remember who we already are in Christ. Lastly, how do we grow in our understanding and experience of that love? It's by longing for and seeking after spiritual nourishment. By longing for and seeking after spiritual nourishment. So look at verse two of chapter two. He says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So quick word on this. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, the author of Hebrews, of the letter to the Hebrews, uses this term of, of infants in the faith and spiritual milk. He uses it in a negative way. He says like, you, you are immature in your faith and you need to grow up. That's not what Peter's saying. What Peter is saying is, is that you've got to seek after this spiritual nourishment that, that's going to sustain you all the ways in which the, the, your faith is going to grow. And he says to do that like newborn infants. And so kids, I want you to think back to maybe uh, when you were younger, maybe now in your house, you have a younger brother or younger sister, like a baby, okay? Um, and I want you to think about how your baby brother lets you know and the whole family know that he's hungry, that he needs something. He does it by crying, right? Very loudly. And, uh, and so your baby brother knows that he needs this milk, that it's good for him. And, and he knows it's what he needs and he realizes he can't get, his on, get it on his own. So he has to cry out for it. That's a picture here of the way that we're to long for this spiritual nourishment, to long for what's going to, to, to grow us up 
in the ways that Peter talks about right here. So practically, how can we do that? Again, all kinds of ways that this is possible. All of the ways in which God gives us more of himself. I'm just going to highlight this one way, and it's worship, it's, and it's corporate worship. Where God, every week, by his word, through prayer, and at this table in particular, nourishes your faith. This place where, where, where you more and more taste and see that your God really does love you, that he really is good, that he really is at work in you. Because it's as we experience more of his love for us that we'll actually become a people of love. So let me, uh, let me close with this. Um, some of you might know the name uh, Kara Tippetts. Uh, she was a uh, pastor of a PCA church planter. She was a Christian, a wife, and a mother. Uh, she died of cancer in, uh, in 2015. And uh, the, the, her story became well known because they moved to Colorado to plant this church. And she was diagnosed uh, within a year of their having moved there. And uh, she began to write. Uh, she started this blog, ended up writing a couple of books. And she, she wrote so beautifully on what grace and community meant to her in the midst of her suffering. And so in, in one of the last things that she wrote, uh, it, it was a post about the, the, this, the pain and the beauty of having to say goodbye to these two lifelong friends. These two friends had flown out from North Carolina to be with her. They knew it was gonna be the last time they saw each other. And so she's trying to write something to them in the midst of all of their pain and sorrow. Here's what she writes. <clears throat> Dear hearts, if you hold back from love, move. If you withdraw when your heart is asked of you, stop hiding. If you're fearful of being hurt so much that you keep yourself away from the love of another, trust me, you will regret it. Open wide your hands to your story. Look closely at us all. We are all broken. Stop hiding, thinking you're the only one. We are all needy. Needy of a community that will share the burden of today with us. People to point us to Jesus. You see, I could never cure my friends, cure their heartache or loneliness, but I can point them to Jesus. They can point me to Jesus. This is what community and friendship is meant for in its sweetest definition. People to help us laugh when all we've done for a week is cry. Oh, my loves, don't be afraid of love. The riches of our relationships is all that matters. It is all that matters. Be brave. Invite someone to coffee and share your heart. And ask another about their heart. Be known and let yourself love and be loved in return. That is God's invitation to us. It is to love one another in a way that opens up the possibility of really knowing and being known. And the reason that's possible is because of this new life that is yours now in Jesus. Give yourself to that life and the fruit will bear itself out in yours. We pray for us. Father, we thank you for uh, the grace of your word. We thank you for the ways uh, that you nourish our faith and the ways that you enable us to taste and see uh, that you are good. And so, Father, we pray uh, that you would make us a community that's characterized by this kind of love, that we would put away all of those things that, that threaten that love, and that we would, uh, by your grace and by the work of your spirit, put on display uh, the love that we have received from you, that we would embody that in our life together. 
And we pray this all uh, for your glory and for our good. Amen.